0: We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, picking it up at verse 5 this evening, and we're going to take a colorful route to it. So we'll read our verses first, start salting the meat before we cook it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 5 says this, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, but not too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up by too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I know that you have a very serious... Message. I mean, I know it's never a joke. I know that. But some weeks, um, they just has to get filtered through every breath. And uh, Lord, I just pray that as you speak tonight, that you will develop in our hearts the shepherd's heart you desire in each of us. And I thank you for the privilege of being able to say yes to you again and again and again and to serve you another day. I pray that you would do great, great things. Please, Lord, open our hearts to your word tonight. Speak profoundly to each of us. Lord, you know you've brought tonight. Make our hearts ready, I pray. Jesus, in your name, fill me with your Holy Spirit and speak through me and do what, through me what I cannot humanly do now, I pray. Jesus, in your name, amen. I would say tonight as I went any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. But search the scriptures, let the Bible have the final say. Some of you have heard me say that for over a decade. Truth be told, it's been said for over two. I do believe it, by the way. I believe this beautiful book you hold in your hands should hold everything you listen to, you hear, and you absorb. You should hold it accountable. I don't care if it's the word on the street or the news or someone on the internet, whatever the case. One of the hardest areas to deal with as a pastor is the area of discipline. It's hard because there's this crucial balance that has to take place and never a decision of discipline is going to be unanimously applauded, even in this Text, notice it says that the punishment, verse 6, that was inflicted by the majority, the fact that he doesn't say everybody tells us that even among this group, the Corinthians, there was a faction that clearly disagreed with Paul's judgment on this situation. We'll see in a moment. And when you're approaching an issue like this, It's, I've got to tell you, by far one of the most painful areas because you are dealing with human beings. If the issue were a dog coming at you or a car speeding out of control with no driver, that would be a little bit easier to deal with. But when you're talking about human beings, it's an entirely different situation. Now, the balance has to be a balance of judgment and mercy. But as a pastor, for instance, and all that means, by the way, is shepherd. There has to be this balance of safety to the flock and compassion for the individual sheep. So every decision that's made has to be made with all points considered on your face with a broken and contrite heart. And I don't want it to just be something you assume this is what pastors do. This should be something as God leads us all to become more like Jesus, we will all become more shepherd like because He calls us to be. And we will all be forced to make these kind of decisions. God will give you, no matter how popular you think you are or are not, He will give you a circle of people that will be, in essence, under your influence. They will ha- you, you will have listening rights with them, and that is an honor. It's not to be taken lightly. And so what my hope is tonight is to lay out a template, might I call it, even if you will, a safety manual, for which then we can take to approach to the situation at hand we have in Second Corinthians 2, because the heart is always restoration if possible. And so I'd rather cover the heavy first and go then to the challenge in regards to the returned repentant person at the end as we have it in our text. But again, like I say, please don't just believe me. Search the scriptures and let the Bible have the final say. The first thing that I kind of did on my face, especially a week where we've been confronted with some people that have been, you know, it's just, it's what you do. It's what happens. As you ask What is the primary role of a shepherd from the inside and from the outside? From the primary role from the outside, a shepherd's responsibility is to breed sheep, really, to be honest. That's the way that the rest of the world would look. Or, if you will, if a shepherd were hired versus the sheep owner, he would be hired, in essence, to multiply sheep. That would be his desire. From a sheep's perspective, they don't see the shepherd that way. And for that matter, the shepherd probably doesn't either. The shepherd's primary responsibilities, in the simplest sense, is to protect them. I mean, they have to be, in order for sheep to reproduce, they have to be both healthy and safe. Neither of those things lacking will cause sheep to reproduce. And so the shepherd's responsibility is that, as much as he is able to be among the sheep in such a way that they would be healthy and that they would be safe and that they would feel safe. When we read Psalm 23 and we read, You make me lie down. Understand sheep are so scared that even the sound of a babbling brook will make them too frightened to drink from the very thing that gives them life. It's imperative for a shepherd to be strong and yet gentle at the same time. So when we start talking about something like discipline, as uncomfortable as that is, we're forced to ask, what would a shepherd be responsible for protecting the sheep From And in prayer, honestly, in prayer and on my face, the Lord has shown me three things. The first of them, by the way, you might not have thought of, I didn't at first until the Lord led me there, was that he's there to protect them from diseased sheep. Now, a diseased sheep is a danger to other sheep but he's not intentionally being so. The symptoms. If I were a shepherd or you were overseeing the flock of your friends, the symptoms are that when other sheep go near this sheep, they become weak, sick, unhealthy. Now, as a Christian, looking as people as sheep, myself as one as well, we can see contagions like gossip, backbiting, lie-spreading, flesh-living, worldliness-desiring, or anything that encourages people that we're trying to become or seeking to become more like Jesus to become less like Jesus. And so what you see is an individual who every time sheep are around them they're weak in their faith. They're no longer strong in their convictions like they used to be. They're sick. They're tired. They're depleted. That which used to give them joy and service, now all of a sudden, they're keeping score where they would never have before. And that's one of the symptoms you'll see where now all of a sudden, it's so much more work though you're doing the same thing. And they're tired, depleted, unhealthy. And the response as a shepherd to a deceased sheep, they quarantine the sheep, identify the contagion, and then remedy the contagion from the sheep. That would make sense. Now, Most of the time when a sheep is dealing with a virus or something that's contagious, often it's skin-oriented. I don't know if you know, sheep often have fairly sensitive skin. And the way then that a contagion is spread is that that particular sheep rubs up against a bunch of other sheep and they get it too. So often, once the sheep is healed, identifying the contagion, removing the contagion, usually, of course, with some form of medicine, often what the shepherd will do in his wisdom is he will then rub the antidote, the antibiotic, on the sheep that had caused the trouble and send him back out amongst the other sheep. And the reason is is that he's more prone to rub up against the same sheep that are diseased, if that makes sense, and therefore they all receive the ointment. In the same way, A person that is contagious. And by the way, the Bible does make clear things like fault-finding spirits. And I don't mean that as far as entities, but that idea that we're always seeking to find a fault. Usually what that means is you're looking for permission to go out into the world like where you really want to be anyways. That whole backbiting gossip. By the way, can I just say, be careful of anyone who spends a lot of time talking about people when they're not there, whether it be good or bad. I've learned this about gossip and flattering. That flattery is something you would only say in front of a person. Gossip is something you would never say if they were there. And as I consider that, I, I, and I'm looking at terms like that in my own heart, the Lord takes me to the carpet right away and says, Let me ask you, are you flattering me? Are you only saying these things when you're, when you're gathered with other people and you just, you know, the, the concentration is that I'm there. Now, he's there everywhere, but where it's clear, he's manifest. Or would I be quick to say it in places that he doesn't seem as clearly there, though he is? For the diseased sheep, the purpose, of course, ultimately, is to see them restored. I mean, a sheep, you would hope, unless it be something like leprosy, you would hope that they would be someone you could see restored and brought back. But for that to happen, you pull the person aside, you isolate them and say, listen, what you're doing is wrong. This is the situation. This is what's happening. Are you willing to agree with me this is wrong? Let's correct that wrong, and I want to send you back out to the people you've been speaking to, and I want you to go out and make it right. Go send the antidote now out to those that you've spread the contagion to. Does that make sense? And the heart in a situation like that is to see that person restored, but also the other sheep made safe from the contagion. And so thus, this is a disciplinary measure. The Bible does say in regards to things like removing scoffers and giving a divisive person no audience. A person who divides, it tells us about whispers who separate the best of friends. It tells us the best thing you can do to them is give them no audience whatsoever. Now, you're assuming the best with a diseased sheep. You're assuming that they're not out there intending to spread disease, that quite often they're even unaware that what they're doing is spreading disease, and therefore the hope is to see them well, to see them well, so that they can then in turn help others get well. That's the first case. And the second case, and this is the other one that I hadn't thought of either, although I'm aware of it because of the time that I had spent in Bethlehem, is that the shepherd's responsibility is to protect the sheep from bully sheep. Now, a bully sheep is pretty clear to identify. The symptoms you'll see, by the way, is as soon as this sheep enters the pen... Sheep retreat to far corners away from them. They're uneasy, they're agitated, and they're uncomfortable. Now, I'm not talking about an individual sheep. There may be interpersonal relationships. Some person walks in, somebody else had a problem with them, that's another story. But when a a person walks in and the entire congregation is uneasy because the person has entered, there is something that should happen as a result of it. Another symptom, by the way, is that the sheepdogs become on edge the moment such a sheep walks in. And I've watched this happen. Now, a bully sheep has traits. They're pushy and insensitive. They're domineering when they talk. They have agendas when they speak. They often corner others, and you feel like you have to fake death or a coma to get out of the conversation. You know those situations. Now, I'm not saying everybody has their moments, but I'm talking about that you are convinced every time this sheep's going to be near you that's the case. What do you do with a bully sheep? The shepherd's response to a bully sheep, by the way, is to isolate that bully sheep and to develop authority over that bully sheep. They have an expression I've heard, by the way, and that's soften, sell, simmer. When they deal with a bully sheep, a sheep, by the way, that is convinced it's supposed to be the leader. And by the way, you're probably aware of the fact that sheep have no real offensive weapon on them. So the only thing they have that's really of any potential threats their head covered in cotton so to speak I'll grant you that. So it's big and fluffy, it's like somebody running at you with a 3-foot afro trying to headbutt you. But just the same, it's their intensity more than their head that wins the favor or wins the, the position. It's interesting, the last time that I watched shepherds in Bethlehem, one of the first things I noticed was that there was such a bully sheep. On that particular bully sheep, by the way, when other sheep gathered to a corner, this particular sheep decided there was a specific spot in between them that it deserved to be. And what it would do is it would push and it would make these loud noises and shoulder and head its way into the center of it they would all flee somewhere else and it would stand there for just a moment in victory to say look i got the spot then it would turn around to where they fled somewhere else and do the same thing and the shepherd says see that that's a bully sheep i go what do you do with them he says well soften sell, or simmer you pull him aside and that shepherd then develops a relationship like you need to realize there's an authority here, and you have to submit to that authority. If that sheep is unwilling to do that, you have two other options. Soften, in other words, they have to soften. If they don't soften, you have two other offers, and that is to sell or simmer. Sell means you sell them to another shepherd and let them deal with them, or simmer means you cook them. That's the idea. So can you imagine sitting with the sheep and saying, you've got three options. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Either you're going to sit according to the rules, or you're going to go to that, to Havav, who has a problem with the sheep, or you're going to be stew. And that's the way that a bully sheep is dealt with. The ultimate hope is that the sheep would soften. Now, let's face it. We're going to be in the front lines here sharing Jesus with anyone that's willing to listen. And with that, people are going to come in in various stages of disrepair and dishevelment. We're aware of that. And we're also aware that people are going to come in all kinds of funky. Hey, when I first gave my life to Christ, I was all kinds of funky. And I can guarantee you I'm still some kinds of funky today. But I recognize the responsibility as a shepherd. To sit down and say, listen, I'm not telling you that you can't be who you are. I'm telling you, you need to become like Christ like the rest of us. But there's a sensitivity that is required to at least not corner and freak out all of the other sheep and to not cause those that are sheep dogs to start barking their heads off. So there are the diseased sheep with the intent to see them well so they could be restored. There are the bully sheep, and the bully sheep, the hope is to see them soften so they could be restored. Do you see what I'm saying? And then there's the third group, the ones we are most common to assume, and that is the wolves. A shepherd is responsible to protect the flock from wolves, because sheep by themselves are not, of course, offensive animals, except the way they smell. That can be often very offensive. And of course, if you look for symptoms, of course, you you would think that the most obvious symptom would be this panic that happens among sheep when they think they're about to be devoured. But what's interesting, what I've learned is, is that is not the most clear symptom that a wolf is in the neighborhood. See, most of us are familiar with wolves or foxes, and they have a very similar manner to them. They make these noises. Now, we can agree, sometimes the foxes, especially in the spring, I don't know how they think this is going to attract a mate, make this noise in the middle of the night in your back garden, too, like mine, that sounds like a tortured, demonic baby. I'm like, what? I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, what in the world is that? Turned out it was a fox. So when they did that song, what does the fox say? We already knew. Of course, he doesn't make any of the noises like they do. Wolves make this noise as well, but the noise that a wolf makes woos the sheep. You see, the purpose is not normally for a foc, I'm sorry, for a wolf to try to jump the hedge. It knows it can't. But it can try to woo out a sheep. And when you talk to shepherds about what's a symptom that a wolf is nearby. One of the things you start to see is sheep one by one get wooed out and then never return. The question is, how many sheep do you want to actually become victims before you go out looking? The moment you start seeing sheep looking and eyeing the door, you need to know. What's the clearest difference between a sheep and a wolf? Their diet. Sheep do not eat sheep. And you look for that that luring away from fellowship by romance doctrinal agendas accusations lies oh it's all out there and the purpose ultimately is to devour the sheep but to do that they need to get them out of fellowship to do so how does a shepherd deal with a wolf well we could be honest to say it ain't pretty They go after him hard. They corral the sheep to a safe place. And they make the wolf clear that if they're going to come near, it's going to get ugly. And someone ain't coming out of this thing without a bruising. Now, I pray because, please understand, it isn't like As a shepherd, I'm constantly looking at people going, Are you a wolf? Are you a diseased sheep? Are you. That would be crazy. The point is when you start seeing an epidemic of weakness and sickness, uh, spiritual unhealth. Or you see this commonality of great agitation and uneasiness and people being fearful about fellowship because of something that could happen there. Not just that the Holy Spirit might nab them. Or you see them lured off. And it always seems like there's that one person and the moment they start on the internet, on that website, that's it. Or the moment that they're always hanging out there, they're gone. And you feel like you have to do reconnaissance after reconnaissance. Now in our situation in the text we have to go back to 1 Corinthians to get the understanding. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for a moment. It says in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1, it is actually reported that there, are se- there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, It's worse in the church than it is in the sick world around us that a man has his father's wife. Now, that's either mom or stepmom, but either way is wrong. But the issue isn't just the sexual sin. Verse 2 is the issue. And you are puffed up. And if not, rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed am absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present. I've already judged him, excuse me, who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the, deli- for the destruction of the flesh, but that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Because your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For Christ, indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Now understand, what Paul is telling us is there's a guy, and he is way out there on the sexual scale. He is sexually free to a point that even the world would blush. And with that, the problem wasn't just this guy was doing this crazy thing, but that the church now had responded by glorying in the fact that they were so tolerant. The question is, is this guy a wolf, a diseased sheep, or a bully sheep? Is he bullying the other sheep? Does not appear to be the case. Is he consuming the other sheep like a wolf would? Not necessarily. It appears to me that what's happening is this guy's behavior, his sexual free mindset, is diseased. This is a guy diseased, and therefore, because though he's promising freedom, or he's telling everyone how free he is, and everyone should be free with him, he is, in essence, as a result of that, infecting the whole church. In such a case, Paul says, this needs to be dealt with strongly and hard. This guy needs to be removed. The problem is, This guy is not admitting his behavior is wrong. That's where it starts to get sketched and it starts to look very wolfy. Because he doesn't appear to be the case, what Paul is saying is, let him go out there and go as nuts into the sexual world as he wants to because sooner or later he's going to have enough of it, repent and go back. And at that point, he's going to realize it was wrong. But sexual sin or any sin that one openly refuses to admit is wrong is the difference between a rebellious sheep at best and a struggling one. A struggling sheep will be one that admits something is wrong but still finds themselves doing it. And will come for help. Will seek accountability. Will do things to seek to see it removed. That is A person struggling. An unrepentant, rebellious one is one who tells you it's not really wrong. Oh, so it only says it 14 times in Scripture. How many times do you have to be told something's wrong for it to be wrong? Now, such an individual, what he says is, let them go out. And let them get a full dose of this in the world. Now, any of you want to volunteer to tell that person that? Any of you, would any of you feel righteous, good, happy, holy for doing that to anyone? Now, we're aware that things are very different today than they were 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, you remove a person from the church, they have no place to go but the world. Today, you remove a person from this church, they'll walk five steps and go to the next one. That's the problem. But when a person is injuring other sheep, The decision has to be made, and Paul is simply being a pastor here. That's what he's doing. He's making a judgment because it appears to him that nobody at the Corinthian church either has the guts and backbone or the wisdom to make such a decision themselves. Paul, having planted the church, steps in and says, This is not acceptable. You're going to kill all the sheep with this disease that's being carried from this attitude. Send him off. And then Paul will ultimately, in the next chapter as well, tell us about people. And he says, look at now I told you not to keep company with those who call themselves Christians but are unrepentant. He goes, but I didn't tell you that about unbelievers. He says, you'd have to leave the world if you were going to do that. But for a person who calls themselves a brother and still has unrepentant behavior, choosing another idol instead of following the Lord for their Lord? Just don't even eat with them. You know, that's not just for the pastor. That's for the Christian. Do you know why we don't want to do that? One, because we would feel guilty because we know that we ourselves struggle with areas. The, area, the issue isn't that we are sinless. The issue is we're willing to admit that the Bible's right. But the second is, we know the backlash we will receive from the person we tell this to. Who do you think you are? Well, I'll tell you what I'm trying to be. Obedient. That's what I'm trying to be. The purpose is not to send them out, though there is a motivation among the safety for the safety of the sheep. But the other motivation is, is for the true restoration of the sheep. See, here's the thing and the lie I hear so much. If I tell them the truth, they'll stop being my friend. If you don't tell them the truth, you've not been theirs. A friend does not let a friend have a false sense of security. So imagine if you were friend enough in kindness, in gentleness and respect to say, hey, I noticed this thing, and I'm not telling you you're doing it or not, but there's this check in my spirit. You're spending a little too much time with this person in a compromising position. Or I'm watching this situation and it just doesn't smell right. Are you sure everything's okay? Do you need help out of it? Because if we're not willing to do that, how are we afraid we're going to lose a friend when what we may ultimately do is really lose them? But I agree with you, that's not fun. It is never fun to look someone in the face and say, you are a danger in your current state. You are a danger. Why don't you go out there and as the Bible says, let your body be destroyed but your spirit spared. You'll probably come back with a great deal of scars, but I want you to recognize, how do we do that in such a way so that we're firm in our goal, but gentle enough to be able to tell them, "When you're repentant, please come back." How do you do that? Well, that's the prayer. That is genuinely the prayer. Now, the question is, does it work? Well, what we have in our text in 2 Corinthians 2 proves it. Look at it again with me. What if such a person repents? What is our responsibility to that person? That's what we have in our text. And again, I'm talking about sheep, not wolves. You don't go, oh, you're a nicer wolf, come on in. Now, restoring does not mean you put them back where they were. If a person is arrested with child molestation, you don't restore them to a place in children's ministry. Would you agree? But that isn't just to protect the children. It's also to protect the individual from temptation. If a person's had a problem with alcoholism, you don't go out and try to get them a job as a bartender. That's only reasonable. You pad things, and they should be willing to do the same. So hear me as we go into this text, because this is not just about, and again, this isn't about every one of us now on, like, oh, maybe you're diseased, maybe you're that. The issue is when you start seeing the symptoms, you start looking, not you're always looking to find wrong. Is that purpose is to hate the sin and not the consequence. Because anyone can hate the consequence of their sin. Some man, and he's kind, and he loves. He seems to love his wife. He's got a ministry. And then he gets way crazy with sexual addiction. Now what's happened? He's lost the respect of his wife. He's being fired from his job. Crazy things are happening. And of course, his life is pretty miserable. One would expect it to be. The question is, does he hate the consequences, or does he hate the sin? Because if all he hates are the consequences, the moment they seem to lighten, he'll go back to his sin. The moment that his wife starts to be kinder to him, maybe the church says, we're going to try to restore you, we'll go to a program, and all of a sudden he realizes that things don't seem so permanent, he will be much more prone to go back, if what he hates are only the consequences. Does that make sense? Please be someone, at least if nothing else, can we pray to hate our sin and not just the consequences? And I'm not just talking about the worldly consequences, because the reason we should hate our sin is the consequence of what it does between us and God. So when Paul says in verses 5-7, through seven, starting on this, if anyone's caused grief, and he's speaking about this guy, again, from 1 Corinthians 5, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. And it goes like it's important for you to recognize this isn't about keeping the pastor happy. This is about making being a blessing to the church. Be careful on that, beloved. Now I realize I can be kind of a cheerleader type of personality. And for some, that's an attaboy, and I'll be quick to give it any time I can. For some, by the way, I realize I'm I'm up so much that if I'm not smiling for whatever moment, people ask me what's wrong. But please hear me on that. We are here first and foremost to become like Jesus, to to let Jesus be the center, and then to be available to bless the fellowship. Not me. You really want to bless me? bless the fellowship i 'd say that 's like saying you really want to bless me bless my family that 's the way that works. You will bless me so much more by blessing my family than ever giving me anything except food no i 'm just kidding i 'm just kidding so when he talks about this it 's interesting and i 'm going to point out just a couple words and we 'll move through this fairly quickly if anyone 's caused grief, the so word their lepel means distress or to make someone sad well He's really, the issue isn't whether he grieves me, the issue is what he's done to the fellowship, and really, the truth be told, he has distressed the fellowship with his behavior. Then he says in verse 6, the punishment, and it's interesting because the word that's used here for punishment is a strange one. The word, there's the word epitimia. Could you say epitimia? Epitimia, epi means upon. Timia, like Timmy or Timothy, means precious or prize or price. The word for punishment here literally means to put a price upon it. A high price. Interestingly enough, can I just dare say sometimes when you actually have to do something like this, you're actually showing someone how valuable they really are. Because it's easier, the easy way out is to not say anything. The harder thing, because you really prize someone, is to intervene. Now, I'm not talking about those of you who might be prone to just jump into anyone's business. I'm talking about where you really have to, out of love, for the purpose of seeing that person again restored. It says, the punishment that was inflicted, notice again, by the majority. So that probably means there was a, good, there was a faction within the church that really disagrees with Paul's statement that that guy should have been sent out. Now, maybe they studied their own church, that we hate Paul, Paul's a loser, what does he have to say kind of guy. Dot com. Maybe they just stayed in the church, but rabble roused and gossiped and backbit and accused. I don't know. But the majority went with this. So, what do you do for such a man? He says, Well, them being sent out should have been punishment enough. When they come back, they don't need to be punished anymore. Here's the problem what if they were a jerk and hurt you before they left? What if the issue is some form of drug use, for instance? But unrepentant drug use where they're inviting other people in, which could be very wolfish. I'll agree with you on that. But because of that, they've they've stolen money. They've done all kinds of other things. They've hurt people. They've abused people. But now they're repentant. There are three things that are to do here, and I want you to take them to heart as I do as well. The first of them is in verse 7. On the contrary, you ought rather to forgive. Now, what's interesting is, this is not the basic common word for forgive. I think that's interesting. The traditional or most common word in the Greek is afiemin. And the idea of it literally means to cast off. In the, in the Hebrew, the word is nasa, which means literally the lift liftoff. That's the most common word that is used. It is used, for instance, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, when it says, If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the word that is most commonly used for forgive. But that's not the word that is used here. Interesting as it is, the word that is used here is the word karizomai, like Charismatic, in the word means, in the simplest sense, to grant as a favor, a gift, or a rescue. It's used, by the way, in First Corinthians two twelve, in in Luke chapter seven twenty one about giving, in Acts twenty seven twenty four about something that is given, in Romans eight thirty two. But think about the word give in the English for a moment. The prefix for what does that mean? It's ahead of time. To foretell means to tell ahead of time. So think about, think about the word forgive. It means to pre-give, to give ahead of time. Is that what we do when we forgive? The word that is used here is the idea of seeking to grant, to give as a gift. Now, the opposite of a gift Is something earned. Would you agree? So, when a person comes in and they've offended you, they've hurt you, they've done wrong, but they're repentant now, think about what you could give as a gift, something that they clearly couldn't have earned, but you're giving to them instead. You're giving before they have a chance to earn before they have a chance to compensate, before they have a chance to try to prove to you that they're really genuine in their repentance, are you willing to be forgiving in such a way? Am I willing to be forgiving for such a diseased sheep that has now dealt with their issues? 1 Corinthians two twelve 12, says, Now that we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The word given is the word here, karitsumai. In 721, Luke 721, it says, in that very hour Jesus cured many of the infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, and to many that were blind, he gave them sight. Karitsumai, he gave Romans eight thirty two He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Give Karitsumai, same word. In Ephesians four thirty two it tells us to be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, and there's our word again, karitsumai, just as God in Christ forgave you. So the first thing we need to do is to forgive. That's our first. Simple quiz. There's only three things. What's the first thing we need to do for a repentant sheep that has returned? Forgive. That should have been easy. Let me try this again. Come on, I want you to pass the test. I'm cheering for you here. Okay, the, A repentant sheep has returned back. What's the first thing we should do? Forgive. Forgive. Good. No, are you afraid to say it because you're afraid you'll hear yourself? Wouldn't you want that? Here's the second. And comfort him. Lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up by too much sorrow. The word for comfort is one that we're familiar with, parakaleho. Para means beside, kaleho means to call. We know this because this is the word that is used about the Holy Spirit in John chapter fourteen, right? the Comforter, or Counselor. It is one that is called near us. Para, beside. Called beside us. Sorry, I'm closing this door. Now, understand there's two sides to this. There is the side where somebody is called near somebody else. The question is, Who's being called in a moment like this to be near whom? Now, if somebody is coming in in a situation like this, can I just say, risk it with both? Now, let's face it. The moment that you do something that is going to make you awkward, let's face it, let's just say you had a temper tantrum. You had one of those days, you came here, someone got on your nerves, and you just flipped your lid. You bought the farm for a moment, and that was it. You were, you know, that hot blood inside of you just ran crazy on you. Someone beat you at foosball or something, and you just lost your witness for the moment. The problem is, let's say in a case like a flood. Think of such an outburst as a flood. When a flood comes, it causes damage anywhere that it reaches. We can agree on that. Once the flood has left, the water can be completely gone. There is still silt that is left on the ground. And when the silt is left on the ground, how do you deal with that? The water's still gone. The flood's gone. But there's still residue And here's the problem. Let's just say Lamara and Marcia, because they're both actually very, very temperate, kind people. They're having one of those moments, and all of a sudden, they both just fly off the handle, and every one of us goes, "Ah, I don't believe it. And they just... They, they're yelling, and they're cursing obscenities at each other, and they're, they're talking about each other's mothers. You know, I mean, it's just unbelievable what they do. And then what happens is ultimately the two of them come to, e- to each other, and they're like, I'm sorry. I was, that was really stupid. And by the way, can I encourage you? When you are trying to seek forgiveness, Don't ask, don't say you're sorry. It's pretty obvious you're sorry. Tell them that what you did was wrong and be specific. That makes a big difference. This thing that I did was wrong. Will you forgive me? Because what that does is it makes clear that you're not just. I feel really bad. Stop making me feel bad. But it's like I want to confirm with you. This is wrong. It's amazing how that really does help. So she, you know, so Marcia starts. She's, you know, I, I think I think Marcia may be the elder, and, and Marcia says, you know, I'm I'm just, you know, this thing that I said was wrong. Will you forgive me? Sure. You know what? Yeah, absolutely. I love Jesus. I forgave you. Lamar responds in like manner. Will you forgive me? This is what I did. It was wrong. I agree with you. Okay, it was wrong. Now, at that point, the flood's gone. But the silt is still there. And what they may do for the next hour is to try to re-talk about it because they're trying to deal with the silt. Does that make sense? The problem is they've already agreed. They've already forgiven. So how do you get past the silt? Move forward. Just at that point? create new memories. That's one of the best ways to distance yourself from it. But what will happen is you'll watch people and they've, they've actually reconciled or it seems to be, but they're still talking about it over and over and over again and they can't get past it because it's like, well, I still feel weird. Of course you still feel weird. There's still silt, emotional silt that spilled out on the flood. Well, let's just agree that there's silt. Now let's move beyond that now and say, okay, yeah, we still will feel weird, but because we feel weird, let's just try to live life ahead of this so we can create some new things that we have in common so the silt's farther behind us. Does that sort of make sense? But now the problem is, let's say one of them had this experience and ran out of the room. Now they have to, they know when they come back in, there's all kinds of weirdness that they're going to have to deal with. Do you really think that what they're going to think is, I mean, it would almost be weird if they came in and were like, oh, come on, you guys, it's totally done, let's just over. And they kind of sit in like nothing happened. They're going to feel really, what they'll probably want to do is sit in the farthest corner they possibly can and stick their toe in the pool to see whether or not the temperature in the room is still safe for them. Does that make sense? And that's why the Lord says the second thing. What was the first thing again? Forgive. The second then is to call near. Now call yourself near or call them near one way or the other. Come near them for comfort. Comfort is not by like, hey, feel better. There has to be a proximity issue with this kind of comfort. Does that make sense? Which, by the way, means whether you know it or not, the greatest comfort will probably not be your words, but more your person. And the moment you sit next to them, you're like, hey, I'm really glad you're here. You know, if it's a guy to a guy or a girl, you put your arm around them for a second and put, you know, put your hand on them. Just say, hey, you know, i you back. Hey, why don't you sit up with me? Just come sit with us again. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, come on. And you know, it's like, but you were with two other people that probably still hate me. And you might have to go, guys, come on. And they're like, oh, come on, and like, oh, okay. As long as none of you really hate me anymore, and then you know, that's we have to do that. Now, understand. In other words, well, here's the strange part. If we're going to be Christ-like, we have to not hold a grudge or feel like we're entitled to blast them. The punishment was already inflicted. Now they're repentant and seeking to be restored. We should be agents of that restoration. And part of that is then that we have to go the extra mile and we go, well, they've done the wrong thing. They should go the extra mile. They're so freaked out about being in the room right now, they probably have indigestion and they're breaking into sweats. Help them a little bit. Does that make sense? So the second thing is to comfort them. Here's the cool part. We all get to be part of that. That's the beauty of it. But again, the hope in this is to see a sheep that is repentant made well. Are you with me on that? Okay, so what's the first of the things we do? Forgive. Forgive. What's the second one? Comfort. Excellent. Now we're, all, now we're almost done. Now look at here's the last of them. It says, therefore, in verse 8, I urge you to reaffirm your love, to him. Kuriahu, by the way, it's the word that's often, it's from the derivative of the same word kuriahu. So the idea of a Lord here. It literally is the idea of make authoritative or ratify or confirm. And I do like this word. It's only used twice. It's used once here and once in Galatians. And and the idea of the idea of this is make sure that you've ratified, solidified, because the idea is, will you love me now? Now that I've been this stupid, now that I've done this thing, will you love me now? And it's one thing to say, yeah, why don't you come and sit with us? You know, okay, we're not going to throw the stone. And it's another thing to say, you do know I still love you. I want you to know that, that you still have my heart. I, st- I want you to know, I mean, at the beginning maybe I'm going to be careful, but I want you to know this. I never stopped wanting to see you with Christ. And who better to display that than a father in Luke 15? Now hear me. For the sheep that's out, I go to, to Revelation chapter 2. Because in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus speaks about a church that's doing all this stuff and they, they really know how to peg out a poser, but, he says, you've left your first love. And he says, remember from where you've fallen, which means they must have come from someplace high to fall that low. Second is to, it says, no, to remember and then repent and then return. And I realize that is exactly what the sheep needs to do but it always starts with remembering. It doesn't start with just, wow, I should probably just go back. With the son in the prodigal story in Luke 15, the son went out, wasted all of his father's money, which, by the way, for him to sell his father's property that quickly, fairly likely he sold it to a Gentile, disgraced his father's household, disgraced the family name, and off he went to go live this prodigal lifestyle. But at the end of it, it says, he came to, there was a moment where he remembered. He remembered. And what he remembered is, my, the servants of my father's household have it better than this. He remembered how good the house was. Could you imagine if we were such a church, so that when someone was out there somewhere being crazy, that what they would remember is, oh, but my father's house was a healthy, good place. It was a place of safety. It was a place where even the servants were treated well. And By the way, that would mean they treated each other well as well. And then, so he went from remembering to repenting. The word for repent, it means to change your mind. And understand, that's when he goes, you know what I'll do? I will go back and I'll tell my father I'm not even worthy to be your son. Just make me like one of the hired servants. It's good enough for me. He changed his mind. He went from I'm entitled to I'm going to do whatever I want to I'm going to submit myself completely under my father. That's changing your mind. Does that make sense? And I've often said, please hear me, we're almost done. Don't lose me now, please. If you're willing to change your mind, he's willing to change your heart. Ezekiel makes that clear. Jeremiah makes that clear. He's asking for you to change your mind. But then what did he do? It, wouldn't have, it wasn't enough for him to go, you know, that's really what I should do. And then he sat in the far country. He went back. That's the return. But that's the scary part. The remembering that causes pain. Oh man, my father's house was a good place. The change in your mind, you know, I really should go back there. We can even consciously say, yeah, I agree with that, but then returning is the scary part. And the moment that son comes back, remember, the father runs to him. That's the first thing we see. And what was the first thing that we saw that we're supposed to do? Forgive. Can you see the love on a father that runs to his son? And then, Tells him, put shoes on this boy's feet, wrap him up in a father's robe, and put a ring back. A ring, by the way, is the father's credit card. You're aware of that, right? Put a ring on his finger, kill the fatted calf, for my son who is dead is alive again. Now tell me, in such a situation, did the father clearly forgive? Did the father clearly comfort? Who came to whom there? The father ran to the son. Now the father could have just stood there like this, waiting for the son to come. Which, by the way, we would be prone to do. But would the son have even made it that far then? But the idea of having a broken heart over such a person so that you would run to them if they were really willing to return? Did he reaffirm his love for him? I would say absolutely. And that's what we're called to do. So those three things. First was forgive. Second was comfort. And third was to reaffirm your love for him. So here's a quiz. Ready? What's number one? Forgive. Genuinely forgive. Second, what is it? It's a comfort. Call near. What's the third? Reaffirm your love. And as a result of that, then, he tells us this. For to this end I wrote. Do you know what that means? He means this was my purpose for this. My goal in this was to see this kid restored, this guy restored. Though this guy was out sleeping with his mom or his stepmom, we sent him out, but the purpose wasn't for him to go out there and just be a pervert. The purpose was so that he could come back repentant. But then we would do these things. This is that I might put you to test because let's be honest, this is tough obedience to have to do this. This is tough obedience, especially when you know a portion of the fellowship is going to flip off and stand on the other side of this. Now, if you've forgiven, and this is that same word, the idea here that if you've given as a gift. Hey, look at it. If you've done it, I've done it. That's what he says. And look at If that's the case, this guy needs to know that if you're willing to do this, I'm willing to stand behind you. I believe that this is the case. And he goes, this is why, verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us. How would Satan take advantage of this situation? Because we're not ignorant of his devices. Because what Satan really wants is to divide you from Jesus, and the easiest way to divide you from Jesus is to get you from among, get you far away from those who love Him. And if he could do that, then you're quick to listen to Him because He's the accuser, and He's the one who seeks to, to He's the, the one to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and He wants to woo just like a wolf would. And it makes a lot of sense to me that if he could do that. And while you're out there, and you're like, I shouldn't come back because they're going to hate me. I've barfed all over them. I've done nasty things all over them. I couldn't possibly come back. They would never forgive me anyways. And somewhere inside you here, you're right. That is not the Holy Spirit telling you that. And that's His device. But more than likely, those first hear me please, those first five minutes that person walks in here, they're deciding whether to stay or not. And they're scared to death. And if they don't get what they need, I'm not telling you it rests on your shoulders, but if they do leave, you don't want to condemn yourself tonight because you're like, if I only did, and I knew I should have, but I didn't. That's what you don't want to have to do. And they come in, and they're scared, and you're like, hey, you know what, I'm going to be the one, I'm going to take that move. You know, or it's a girl and you're a guy and you're like, Sister so and so, Naomi or Anna or whoever, Jenny, you know, somebody that seems safe, Marcia or Lamara, Lauren, whoever it is, you know, it's like, Hey, go. Would you go there and go and remind them that they're loved? You were at that study. Oh, okay. But they yes, forgive them before you get there, please. So that they know they're still home. By the way, I'm sure that the moment that son left, there was an empty chair at the dinner table that never got filled till that boy came back. And I really do believe that that's still the case here. There are some right now that are out there and they're living crazy lives and they're trying to say it's okay. And I'm just praying God, break them. He doesn't use excessive force. So if they're already getting walloped, chances are they're already at that stage. But I'm like, God, get them to the place where they're willing to admit it's wrong so they'll seek to get cured so they can humble themselves and come back because there is still a place at the table for them. He didn't say, my boy has now become my son again. He said, my son was dead but now alive. He never stopped being my son, says the father. And there are sons right now out in the prodigal, out in in the far country that God wants back. Now hear me as we go to prayer. Our God is a restoring, a reconciling God. That's the reason Jesus came, was to restore us in the first place. And if he died on the cross to restore us when we hated him, how much more would he want to see us restored now that we're his? He's not like us. He doesn't go, you know what? I didn't realize he would be this much trouble. Forget it, the deal's off. He knew all of it before he died for us. And he wants us. And he wants them. Now, even if we never get to see them again, may our hearts be readied if we do. Now, in a situation, may God make it so that we're careful about where we step in, but to see the disease still made healthy, to see them restored, to see the bully softened so they could be restored. And if they can't, the decisions that have to be made are never fun ones, But listen, restoration sometimes is a very long process. Softening normally doesn't happen overnight. And we pray. We never stop caring for someone because they're not here. We just love the sheep enough to keep them safe. My prayer is that our heart would always be soft. Our skin would be thick, but our hearts would be soft. Even to those that are really making stupid choices right now. But that we would pray that they would be willing to repent. They would be willing to come clean and come home. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you for this text. I thank you, Lord, for where you've led us. I recognize we've gone around this a couple times, but Lord, it's so important and I pray, Lord, I, I pray if nothing else that it would, in regards to the first portion, Lord, that it would lead the fellowship just to pray for us as we have to keep our eyes open and seek to protect, but also to invest and to love on and, and to try to find that crucial balance between justice and mercy. And Lord, I, I, it's never easy, but it's, but it's necessary. And Lord, you know we never want to make a decision that you would not make. And Lord, I know you've told us things like cast out the scoffer and, and dissension or division will cease. But Lord, I recognize that the purpose ultimately is to see them repentant and to see the sheep safe. And Lord, what you've told us and taught us in 1 Corinthians and now in 2 Corinthians, there's a beauty in that restoration. Oh Lord God, make it that we would have that we would recognize that we are ambassadors of reconciliation and restoration. So, Lord, keep our hearts soft to those, Lord, that we feel we have a right to be hard to. Now, Lord, we don't want to throw pearls to swine, and we don't want to throw sheep to, to wolves, and we certainly don't want to invite, invite wolves in to the, to the pen. But, Lord, give us wisdom to know, to be careful but loving and to err on the side of love. But Lord, I just pray that there would never be a decision that hurts sheep. And so Lord, I just pray tonight, Jesus, even as you died on the cross, because you are the good shepherd, you give your life for the sheep. They know your name and you call them by name and you lead them out and in and they find good pasture. Lord, please, please, make us more like you that we would be willing to lay down our lives as necessary however that would be and lord we pray for the prodigals right now that are out there that somehow they even have enough scripture to condemn themselves but they can't get it to their own heart and they're willingly submitting themselves to their own nonsense God, I just pray tonight that you would bring them home. Lord, let them tonight even remember what it really means to be right. What your Father's house, what, Jesus, what your Father's house is like, what this house is supposed to be like. And that they would repent in their mind, they would change their mind, and then they would return home. If, Lord, this is where you want them, if not, put them in a place where they can be right. Lord, I just thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. Because I deserve to go to hell, but you wouldn't let it happen. Not at least without me having a choice to otherwise. And I thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross so all of my guilt and sin could be properly paid for. Just like Scripture promised. You were buried, and three days later you rose again, just like Scripture promised, and... And Lord, again, I just confess you as my Lord and Savior. Not because I have to, but because my heart craves it to just declare you. And I thank you. Oh, Jesus, tonight be the Lord of us as well as our Savior. And lead us, Lord, to green pastures. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, confessing you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. Have us now completely and lead us into that restoration, even with others. Jesus, in Your name, Amen.